We open the Holy Scriptures to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. We are going to read Matthew's inspired account of the crucifixion of our Lord, beginning at verse 11 and reading through verse 61. The text to which I call your attention is found in verses 39 through 44. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 11. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, To never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at that feast the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas, or Jesus, which is called Christ? For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him, and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him, and put his own raiment on him, and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. 
Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Thus far we read in the gospel history. Let's look at verses 39 through 44, I will reread those, and that will be the, the text this morning. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Today is the God-appointed day of rest. Rest. And that's something we need, is it not? We are a people who labor and are heavy laden. We've labored throughout this week gone by in our vocations, in our callings, the place God has given us in this life. We've labored, probably grown weary, from this or that affliction that we're facing right now or that we have carried for a long time and presses us down. Do you feel heavy laden, as though you have great burdens heaped on your back and you're bending over beneath their weight. That's our experience in this world, in this life. Then there's the greatest labor and the greatest of burdens that we carry, the labor of the Christian life, which is a battle against our own sinful flesh. And there is that great burden of our sin and the guilt of sin that we feel every day because we sin every day. We have that old man that we wrestle with day in and day out. And so we come to this house of prayer. We come on this day of rest, needing and seeking rest. What gives true rest? To put it in a better way, who? Who alone gives true rest? The one about whom we read in this passage. 
The one who earlier in the Gospel of Matthew says, Come unto me, ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ, the Prince of of Peace, the rest giver. He is the one and only who can give us the true rest that we need in the midst of our labors, in the midst of carrying our heavy burdens, and especially this, he is the one and only who can lift that heaviest of burden, the guilt of our sins, and give us that true peace of knowing we are redeemed, belong to the God of our salvation. And the gospel history that we have read this morning shows us What is at the heart of our rest? Why we have rest? How we can have rest? The only reason there is rest for the children of God because Jesus Christ came for sinners like you and me and died on the cross for his elect, suffered and bore reproach to deliver us from our sins. The rest of the Sabbath day is the rest of Christ's finished work. And the rest that we enjoy here this morning is the rest that comes to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says, Believer, your sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ and his work. Believer, you have a place with God in the eternal kingdom for the sake of what Jesus Christ has done. And you have the Spirit of Christ who will strengthen you to carry whatever burden the Lord gives you to bear in this life until the end of this pilgrimage when every single one of those burdens will be lifted. Our rest is in Christ. And that's why Christians never get tired of hearing the simple gospel story of the cross. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to look at Matthew's account of the cross of Calvary. Jesus, at the appointed time, delivered himself into the hands of sinners to be crucified and slain for his people. This is the history of Good Friday. That morning, under the newly risen sun, Christ had been led through the city, out to the gate of Jerusalem, to the hill of the skull called Golgotha, which would be the altar upon which the Lamb of God would be slain for the sins of his people. Our Lord Jesus was crucified that morning at 9 a.m. and he hung upon the cross for nine hours there suffering for our sins. And it was especially during the latter part of his time on the cross, those three hours of darkness, that hell itself was brought to Jesus Christ and he bore the wrath of God fully to atone for your sins and mine and deliver us from the punishment our sins deserve. The sermon this morning is going to look at some of the events that took place during the first three hours that Jesus was on the cross, specifically the suffering of mockery, reviling, and reproach that our Lord Jesus endured, and a temptation to come down from that cross, and the wonderful work of Jesus in refusing to come down from the cross. Refusing to come down, but instead staying on that cross to endure all of its suffering, that gives us rest and peace. Jesus refused to come down for you. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let us consider Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44, under the theme, Refusing to Come Down. We're first going to look at the cruel mockery that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered throughout that first three-hour period as he hung on the cross. Then we're going to narrow our focus and look at something that was going on while Jesus suffered that mockery. Namely, there was a great final temptation that was brought to Christ. And then lastly, we will see How Jesus refusing to come down accomplishes our salvation and gives us rest. The gospel transports us to Calvary. 
For the first hours of Jesus suffering upon the cross before God blotted out the light of the sun and silenced every human tongue, our Lord was subjected to cruel mockery. He was reproached and reviled by all. You would think that our Lord's enemies would have spent all of their malice by now. After all of the Sanhedrin had pulled off their sham trial Thursday night, they had managed to drag him before the Roman governor early Friday morning, and they had coerced Pontius Pilate through stirring up the multitude to deliver Jesus over into their hands to be crucified. The nails have already been driven through Jesus' sinless hands. He has been lifted up on a Roman cross to suffer hours of excruciating dying. And yet their malice was not spent. Now Jesus' enemies gather there at Calvary to gloat and to jeer over the Son of God. Whom they believe they finally put an end to. And with tongues sharper than swords, and with words aimed as poisoned arrows at our Lord's heart, they begin to heap mockery upon the Christ. And that's what our text describes for us. Matthew records in great detail the the universal mockery to which our Lord was subjected for the three hours that he hung on the cross before the darkness came. Matthew begins painting a vivid picture of it by describing for us the cruel mockery that the passers-by heaped upon our Lord. That's verses 39 through 40. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. You see, Calvary was a hill outside the western gate of Jerusalem, the western wall. And beside the foot of Calvary, one of the main roads in and out of the city passed. And now remember, Good Friday, the day of Jesus' death, was the Friday of the Passover week. And so that meant there were Jews from all over the place living in the villages outside of Jerusalem, coming to and from Jerusalem all throughout the day for the celebration of the feast. And so Jesus' crucifixion was not something that took place in some private chamber or in a secluded corner, but it was a public spectacle on a hilltop. All day long there are pilgrims and people going back and forth from the city of Jerusalem. Some pausing to look at what was going on at the crest of Calvary. And what the text reports is that the vast majority of the multitude that passed by that day wagged their heads and poured mockery upon the Christ as he hung there upon the cross. Some undoubtedly stopped and formed a small crowd of bystanders. Others quickly passed by. But they wagged their heads, expressing their disbelief and their scorn for this man who claimed to be the Christ, the King, Son of God, and look at him now on a Roman cross. Surely he cannot be who he said to be. But the most constant of Jesus' mockers were none other than the leaders of the church of that day. Matthew describes that in verses 41 through 43, which sets before us the response and the behavior of the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders, and the most educated of the Old Testament church at that time. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now that mere fact that chief priests, scribes, elders were all there at the cross shows us how far these whitewashed sepulchers had sunk. This was the Passover week. Are we to imagine that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem had nothing else to do on the Friday of the Passover week than stand there for hours at Calvary mocking the crucified Christ? These men were forsaking their obligations 
to be here to heap mockery upon the Christ whom they hated, to taunt him, to increase his suffering. They, after all, had been his fiercest foes throughout his ministry. And this cruel mockery of the Christ was contagious, as the text describes. Everyone that was there at Calvary, it seemed, participated in this universal mockery. The hardened Roman soldiers, of course, they were used to this kind of grisly work, so they joined in, likely as a kind of sport. The parallel passage in Luke 23, verses 36 through 37, says this, And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And most surprising of all, none other than the two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus join in heaping this mockery upon Christ. Verse 44 of our text points that out. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Think about that. These crucified criminals were willing to use some of their last precious agonized breaths To mock the Christ? We know, of course, that as one of those criminals beheld the words and behavior of of Christ as he suffered, God would use that to marvelously and graciously change his heart so that later on in the history, this same man would rebuke his fellow malefactor for mocking Christ and would say to Christ, Lord, remember remember me when... Thou comest into thy kingdom. But what we see here is a universal mockery. And now let's let's look a little more closely at the mocking words themselves. And let us see that there is a common thread. There is a theme in what the passers-by are saying, what the scribes, Pharisees, and elders are saying, what the Roman soldiers said, what the two criminals on the crosses said. And the common thread is this. There is a mockery that is focused on Jesus' identity as the Son of God and as the Messianic King of the Jews. In all of these instances of mockery, we hear it repeated. If thou be the Son of God, or if this man is the King, let him come down from the cross. The idea behind their words being this. If this man is really who he says he is, really is who he purports to be, he would not be there dying on a Roman cross. And so now prove it. Prove you're the Christ. Prove you are the Son of God. Come down. Go back to the words of the passers-by as they mocked Jesus. Thou that destroyest and buildest, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself, they said. Those words of Jesus can be found in John 2, verse 19. Early in his ministry, after the first cleansing of the temple in Jerusalem, many Jews asked for a sign to confirm that he had divine authority to do these things. And Jesus had replied to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that only made the crowd of Jews more perplexed and angry. It took decades to rear up this temple, they said. And you say you will destroy it and rear it up again in three days? They failed to understand what John 2 verse 21 says that he spake of the temple of his body. But those words were remembered, and those words were continually twisted and used against Jesus. You recall that in the sham trial Thursday night, when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews brought false witnesses who twisted these words and tried to use them against Jesus as if he was some radical man who was seeking to destroy the holiest site of the Jewish people, the very sanctuary of God. But even these false witnesses, their testimony could not agree. But now here's the thinking behind these jeering passers-by. You said you had power to destroy this great temple and build it up in three days. Where's your power now, Jesus? You're on a Roman cross, dying. If you are who you say you are, come down. 
The Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders pursued this same line of thinking, but they took the mockery even further. You can hear the scorn in their voices as they jeer. He saved others himself. He cannot save. Understand, they're not granting. They're not granting that that Jesus saved anyone. But they're looking at Jesus upon the cross and they're saying, look at you now. This shows your whole ministry was fake. This Jesus who went around healing the sick and casting out devils, he seemed to save so many, but look at him now. He's hanging on a Roman cross. If he cannot save himself from this, then clearly he could not have saved anyone else. Oh, do you not hear the devil's voice in that? Jesus is not a savior. What kind of savior is this? On a cross. And they go on. If you're not a savior, you're also not the king. They go on to mock the reality that Jesus is the Messiah and the king sent of God. You can imagine their eyes burning with rage as they looked up to Pilate's superscription that he had put above Jesus, which was supposed to contain an accusation, was supposed to state the crime for which the man was suffering the penalty of execution. But Jesus' superscription had no accusation. It simply stated fact. God sovereignly guided Pilate's hand so that it would state nothing but fact. This is Jesus, the king, the king of the Jews. But that infuriated the scribes and the Pharisees. He was not their king, and so now they they pour out scorn upon him. Jesus, a king? Dying on a Roman cross? If he was the king, he would come down from the cross. He would send the Romans packing. He would set up a a glorious kingdom like David and Solomon here in Jerusalem. And he would sit upon the throne. But he doesn't do that. And so he cannot be king. They reason. And then they take it yet further and mock Jesus' own relationship to his father. That's in verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him, that is, let God deliver him now if he will have them. For he said, I am the son of God. Look at this man. On a cross? The son of God on a cross? If you are who you say you are, come down. Surely your father will deliver you. He will not leave you hanging on that cross, will he? As they see it. That Jesus is on the cross is proof he is not the Son of God. How painful these mocking words must have been to our Lord. And that's what we want to see a moment as we wrap up the first point. That all of this mockery described in detail in Matthew, it's described in detail for a purpose. This was a big part of Jesus' substitutionary, atoning suffering on our behalf. When the pages of Scripture transport us to Calvary and through the Bible we look with the eyes of faith and behold those events that took place there 2,000 years ago, it's very easy as earthly creatures to focus on the physical dimensions of Jesus' suffering. And that was very real. The nails through his hands and through his feet being lifted up and exposed upon a cross and all of the other things that went with that excruciating physical pain. And that was part of Jesus' suffering. The wages of sin is death, physical as well as spiritual death. But the physical suffering of Jesus Christ was just a part of it. There was mental, there was emotional, there was especially spiritual suffering upon the cross. And this mockery, this rejection, this reproach was part of it. Jesus was the Son of God who came down from heaven. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. He came to the nation of Israel, which outwardly was what was called church in that day. And he was rejected. And now, he is dying upon a cross, and everyone scorns him. Everyone ridicules him. You think of the pain that that would cause. Think think of the pain when someone has ridiculed or mocked you, or accused you falsely of something, and it's unjust how that pierces the soul. There is a unique 
pain that is brought about by unjust, cruel mockery, accusation, the like of which we read on the pages of Scripture here. You see, Jesus' suffering was not merely the fact that he came and he divested himself. He put off, set aside the honor and the privileges that he deserves and enjoyed as the Son of God in glory. But he came and took upon himself our flesh, that in our flesh he might suffer. Suffer for us. Suffer everything for us. And part of that suffering was bearing the reproach, reproach that we as sinners deserve to bear. You see, that's an element of what hell is. When we talk about the punishment of hell, in the forefront of our mind is the reality that hell is separation from God's fellowship. Hell is suffering under the just and holy wrath of God. But part of the the suffering of hell is also bearing the reproach of sin. Jesus bore reproach for us. He was mocked, ridiculed, suffered the contradiction of sinners, and yet he opened not his mouth. As 1 Peter 2 verse 23 tells us, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And he was reproached by the worst of the worst. Notice that contrast. Jesus, the sinless Son of God in our flesh, numbered with the transgressors. Though innocent, he is condemned by the the church of that day as well as the civil magistrate of that day by all. And the perfectly righteous Son of God is hanging on a cross. And on that cross, he is mocked and ridiculed by the greatest of transgressors, the malefactors on either side of him. He's not only numbered among the transgressors, he's numbered among the worst of transgressors and ridiculed by the worst of transgressors. For you and me, and for every one of his elect sheep for whom he came into the world. Just pause and think about that for a moment. As you see what Jesus suffered... In this text, and this is just a sliver of what happened on Calvary, but as you look at this reproach, this cruel mockery that he endured, he silently, patiently endured it for you. What does that say about his love? What does that say about his power to save? Oh, how much it says. That he would take our place under the just judgment of God. Bear our sins. Bear our curse. Be made sin for us who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God. That the reproach that should fall upon us came upon him. For our deliverance. What a savior. What wondrous love is this? What power of our Savior to bear up under this aspect of his suffering and endure to the end. The Bible is so very personal. That's where our catechism gets that personal nature. Lord's Day 1, my only comfort is that I belong to Jesus. His mind is your name, my name, the names of all of his people that he came to save. And for you, he endured this. What a savior. Now a closing application for the first point is, what do we do with his name then? Being Christian is not an easy life. It's much easier to blend in with the world To not bear his name. To not let it be known that we belong to him. Because bearing the name of Christ will bring reproach in this world. And our human natures shrink from that. We don't want that painful suffering of reproach. Beloved, let us see that it is an honor 
It is a privilege even. And for the Christian, it carries a certain joy to be reproached for Christ's sake, to suffer for the captain of our salvation whose sufferings have accomplished our salvation. Let us never be ashamed to bear the name of Christ and to bear his reproach. Look at what he did for us. What he did to give us that honor, that privilege, that joy of being his and having his name upon us. That's the cruel mockery that our Lord endured. But now, in the second place this morning, we want to notice something that's going on. Behind the scenes, you might say, as all who were there at Calvary, the passers-by, the leaders of the church, the soldiers, the malefactors, heaped cruel mockery on the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone else was there, and someone else was speaking. Go back to that common thread that you find in the mocking words. If thou be the Son of God, come down. Save yourself, if thou be the Son of God. Do those words sound at all familiar? Indeed, they should sound familiar, because someone spoke those words much earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, someone spoke those words right after Jesus began his public ministry, after he was baptized by John the Baptist, and the Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove, and in his human nature equipped him for the carrying out of his ministry. And then Jesus went out into the wilderness. And there he met the tempter, who came to him, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter said this in Matthew 4, verse 3, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. You see, behind the sneering faces, behind the mocking voices, in those taunting words, the old serpent, the tempter, is whispering. He's pursuing the same thing that he was pursuing at the onset of Jesus' ministry. What was Satan trying to do in the wilderness there? He was tempting Jesus, trying to lead him astray, get Jesus to depart from the way of his father to commit a sin, to disobey, and to thereby disqualify himself from the office of mediator of the covenant. That's Satan's purpose. He knows Jesus is the Christ sent into the world, that seed of the woman with which God had said would crush his head. And so Satan throws himself into that work throughout our Lord's ministry, trying to get Jesus to depart from that way of perfect obedience that would lead to the cross. And he's doing the same thing here. He's whispering. He's tempting He's trying to get Jesus to turn from the path of obedience to his Father at this most crucial point, at this most difficult, agonizing part of his ministry, his death on the cross. We have here Satan's last great effort to try to destroy the work of God, a final temptation to stop Jesus from finishing the work the Father gave him to do, which work would be the death blow to the serpent. In the words of the passers-by, save yourself. In the words of the jeering leaders, if you're the Son of God, if you are the King, come down from the cross, then we will believe you. If you are the Son of God, come down. Show your power. Display for all to see that you are who you say you are. Then we will believe. Then you will have victory. Then we will bend the knee. There's the temptation. You see what Satan is whispering in the mocking words? There's another way. 
there's another way to glory. You don't have to go through this suffering. Come down from the cross. There is another way. That cup of wrath that will be waiting for Jesus in the three hours of darkness when he will drink it to its last bitter drop, you don't have to take that cup, whispers Satan. Come down from the cross. Exercise your great power. Show yourself to be the Son of God, and all will bend the knee. It sounds a lot like the final temptation in the wilderness, does it not? When Satan said to Jesus, just bend the knee and worship me. Just give ear to me and obey me just this once and I'll give you everything. Just come down from the cross and the suffering will stop and all will see you are the Christ and all will bend the knee. This is how Satan works. He often attacks the fiercest when we are most vulnerable. And here he comes to Jesus in the midst of his agony. You can imagine what a powerful temptation this was. Our Lord Jesus could not sin. He was incapable of sinning, and yet, mysteriously, as we know from the scriptures, he was in all points tempted, like as we are. And so we can understand something of the draw of this powerful temptation, even upon the perfect sinless flesh of our Savior, how much more tempting this was than turning rocks into bread to have something to eat after 40 days of fasting. This powerful temptation come down from the cross and the suffering which no human mind can fully wrap itself around, that suffering will come to an end. wonder, the wonder of the text, the wonder of this gospel passage is Jesus refuses to come down. He doesn't give in to the mockery and he doesn't give in to that final terrible temptation as an arrow that the devil shoots right at him in those mocking words. He refuses to come down But he stays. He stays upon that cross, knowing full well what is coming as he stays upon that cross. He stays. Not because he's forced. As Jesus himself had said earlier in his ministry, no man takes his life from him. He has power to lay it down and power to take it up again. In fact, Jesus' refusal to come down from the cross is the demonstration of his power, his saving power. So great is his power that he stays on the cross and victoriously overcomes that great final temptation of the devil. He refuses to come down. And the text highlights that for us in a very striking way. The text highlights that for us with its Silence. Silence. Just as Jesus said nothing to defend himself before Pontius Pilate, but humbly as the Lamb of God silently went like a lamb to the slaughter, so too here. What do we read about after our text? Right after verse 44, do we read Jesus speaking back to those who reviled him? No. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Matthew moves on to the next phase of Jesus' suffering on the cross. He's silent. He bears that reproach, overcomes that temptation. He does not give in. He does not give ear to the devil any more now than he did at the beginning. But with silence, there is the resounding, No, I will remain upon this cross. I will remain faithful to my Father. And I will save my people from their sins. He bore the mockery and the reproach for you. 
and he stayed on the cross for you. Think about that. What wondrous, powerful, saving love of our Savior we see here. He is obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and he denies himself to the uttermost that he might give himself to us to the uttermost. He is the victor over the greatest of temptations, the perfect, obedient, suffering Savior. And in this, in refusing to come down, Jesus accomplished our salvation. What if he did come down? What would have become of us if Jesus had come down? We would have been eternally undone. It would have been over. The work of Jesus' name, Jehovah's salvation, would not have been finished. Our sins would have been left unpaid for. We would be unreconciled to God. God's wrath would be unappeased. His justice unsatisfied. Atonement not made. The Father's will unfulfilled. The mediator of the covenant a failure. Indeed, there would be no it is finished upon the pages of Scripture to resound through the ages to the comfort of God's people. It would be unfinished. It would have been over, and we would have been undone. If Jesus came down from the cross, we would go down. Down into the grave, and through the grave's portal to hell itself. But Jesus refused to come down. Jesus stayed up that he might lift us up to eternal glory. That's the gospel message of this text. By refusing to come down, Jesus lifts us up. Jesus gives us rest. Jesus will lift every burden that we bear. And every burden that we feel right now, even this morning, is a burden that will not crush us. We have salvation in this Christ. He has delivered us from our sins. He has reconciled us to God. He has satisfied God's justice. He has made atonement. And that can never be undone. Here we see Jesus conquering the last great effort of the devil to try to stop it. And he was victorious. There's the basis for our rest. The rest for God's people who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus refused to come down from the cross. And the marvelous thing is that by refusing to come down from the cross, Jesus in fact turned all of the mocking words over on their head and even fulfilled them in unexpected ways. The passers-by mocked him. Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. No. Because by staying on the cross, by refusing to come down, Jesus was, in fact, building the temple. As Jesus gave his body to be destroyed, he was building the temple of God. His mystical body, the assembly of his elect, his church. As he gave his body, the temple of his body, to be destroyed, he was establishing God's tabernacle with men. His death, would be the basis for covenant fellowship between God and his people. By staying on the cross, he is building the temple. And by staying on the cross, the old temple is done away with. As later on in the passage we read, the moment Jesus dies, the veil of the temple in Jerusalem is rent in twain, exposing before the eyes of all the most holy place, indicating that the death of Jesus Christ brings us into the most holy place. There is no separation anymore because Jesus is the new and living way to the Father. By refusing to come down, he builds the temple of God. 
He saved others. Himself he cannot save, they jeered. No, no, he will not save himself precisely because he will save others. And it is by refusing to come down that he does, in fact, save his people. Every single one of them, not one whom the Father gave him, will go lost because Jesus refused to come down. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. No, it is by staying on the cross and refusing to come down that he shows himself to be the great messianic king. It is by refusing to come down from the cross that our king conquered. In the most unexpected way, he gave himself to death And by his death, he trampled death underfoot. By his own death, he crushed the head of the serpent. By his own death, he shows himself the victor over sin. And by his resurrection, he puts death to death, finally, for his people. The cross is the victory of the king. And even though to human eyes it seemed Jesus was utterly in the power of his enemies, in reality they were utterly in his power. That's the gospel of the Christ who refused to come down. Does it give you rest this morning, beloved? Ponder it. Think upon it. And it will give peace to your soul. Jesus refused to come down from the cross. And therefore, God will never refuse you. Amen. Our faithful God and heavenly Father, we thank thee for the gospel of Christ crucified. And that our Lord Jesus, even as he endured the greatest sufferings and faced the greatest of temptations, refused to come down from that cross, but stayed and finished the work of our salvation, atoning for our sins, meriting everlasting righteousness and salvation. Grant that this word of the gospel may penetrate our hearts this morning and give us peace and rest that we may go from church today with our burdens eased and lifted.